The Boulderista is a podcast that celebrates the Boulder, Colorado lifestyle by highlighting local influencers and the inspiring impact they have on our community and celebrating the local traditions that make this the happiest place to live in the U.S. I am your host, Sherry Figueroa, and I invite you to explore what makes Boulder Dr. Larry Gold is an internationally recognized scientist whose research at the Gold Lab at CU Boulder has spawned numerous discoveries and biotechnology patents. His annual Gold Lab Symposia tackles big questions in healthcare, with the country's biggest names in science as keynote speakers. A bioscience industry pioneer and entrepreneur, Dr. Gold has been involved in several biotech companies over the years, most recently Somalogic in Boulder, Colorado, an organization with the goal of improving the quality of life of every individual by transforming how health is assessed and managed based on the precise measurement of changes in the body's proteins. In addition to his work as a scientist, Gold, with the help of his wife and their friends, created Friends School, a top-rated independent school in Boulder focused on creating lifelong learners. Today on the Boulderista podcast, we share Larry's story on how he got from Schenectady, New York to Boulder and the meaningful impact he has made on our local and global community. I am so honored to welcome my friend, Dr. Larry Gold. Welcome, Larry. Wow. Thank you uh, a lot, Sherry. It is true. We're friends, so this will be fun. This is fun. So Schenectady, New York. Yeah. You want me to say something about Schenectady? <laughs> well, that's where you came from. Yeah. I was there uh, until I was 17 and then really <clears throat> never lived there again. I went off to college. I had, as we often jokingly say, I had escape velocity. Most people in Schenectady stay there forever. Uh, I have my classmates from high school. They're still there. Uh, I've gone to a number of reunions. Um, it's a wonderful place, but it got hammered because General Electric, which used to have 40,000 employees, um, stopped, shut it right down, became you know even bigger. And now it's this big factory that's boarded up, and there are kind of 100 people hanging around, making sure nobody's sleeping there or whatever. It's right on the Mohawk River. It's a beautiful site. And it's it's like the Ozarks. It's a sad thing. And it's made a slight recovery in the last ten years. But it's not it's not what it used to be. So how did you come to leave Schenectady? <laughs> well, it was you know, I was a good student in high school, meaning that I did nothing but got good grades and played golf and had all my friends from Sicily who are still my friends. I mean, Schenectady is a Sicilian city by, you know, ethnicity. And and um, and I got, someone told me I ought to go to Yale. So I applied to Yale. I'd never heard of Yale or, or Harvard. I'd never heard of anything. i just heard of my little town. And I, I got into Yale because uh, I was a singer then. And uh, the man who was the Yale recruiter in Schenectady was the Glee Club director. And he said, you ought to go and 
sing at Yale. I said, wow. So I applied and I got in. And uh, so I was just lucky. I got lifted out of Schenectady um, by getting into a college that was a transformative place. So bridge the gap between Yale and Boulder. Ah, so uh, my undergraduate experience was mixed. It was really the time of civil rights. It was the time of Cuba. That was, you know, 1959. And uh, we did civil rights stuff. And and I eventually ended up being a biochemistry major, uh, which was the only thing I could major in because my grades were not so good. Um, And it was a major that was created in time for me to major in it. And all you needed to do was take one class. I did. I passed it. So I had to go off to graduate school, which I did. And I got married to my first wife and uh, became a biochemist, uh, kind of. Um, And when I say kind of, it turns out that the science stuff is, uh, you can do it wrong and you can do it better than that. And my PhD thesis was just junk, it was awful. I mean, I, I've sometimes given the one paper that resulted from my thesis to graduate students and asked them to attack it by taking my name off the thing I give them, and they don't have any trouble attacking it because it was really a piece of junk. And I had a friend from Yale who helped me get from that bad PhD to go work with a Nobel Prize winner in New York, who was then 75. You know younger than I am now. And he was, it was remarkable. And I really learned science after I got my PhD. I spent two years in New York. I applied for a job here in Boulder, got it. They didn't have a building, they didn't have a lab, so they paid me and said, go someplace and learn something. So I was now a real sciencey type because those two years in New York were so amazing. So I went to Geneva, Switzerland, and continued to work in a lab. By then, uh, Rita, my first wife, and I had two children, Carissa and Jody. And I came, and uh, so that that was how I got her. I got and I, when I applied for a job when I was in New York, I was really I was getting to be kind of famous because uh, we had done something that was noteworthy. Um, and uh, so I thought I was going to have a lot of choices about jobs. And the only place that offered me a job was Boulder, Colorado. I applied for six, one for six, and uh, and, and so I took it. (laughs) You know, it was a good idea. I just said, okay. Now you're here in Boulder, and you're rooting into the CU science community as a professor and the Gold Lab. How does this foundation lead you to pioneer the biotech industry here in Boulder? I started here in the very beginning in Boulder of uh, 1971, and I did what what every assistant professor does. You work like crazy. I knew what I wanted to do. I did it. I loved having a lab and these young students. I mean, it was really fun. So I had 10 years between 71 and 81 of just working. I got promoted. I got tenure, all that stuff, taught did work. I I was in my lab all the time. And so I was just going to be a professor forever. And I wasn't going to do anything about biotech. And there was no biotech then. In 1976, the first biotech company ever was formed in San Francisco 
called Genentech. And everybody who was like me thought, wow, I could do that. And it took us five years to figure out what that meant. And the company we started in 1981, four of us, was one of the very earliest biotech companies in the country, or the world, really, following on the lead of Genentech. And there were almost no companies formed from 1976 through 1981 because it was such a bizarre idea. We were going to be academic scientists. We are going to do basic science. We weren't going to try to make drugs or any of those things. So that we started the biotech industry. And at the exact same time that we started it in Boulder with this company called Synergen, um, Marv Crothers, who's still here and is a wonderful friend, was part of another company that's today incredibly famous called Amgen, which is in L.A. And Amgen is today the biggest independent biotech company today in history. And um, Marv was part of that. And we started Synergen at almost the same time. And then when Synergen didn't do so well, Amgen bought us. So it's all kind of, God, you know, kind of funny. But that didn't leave you with uh, much of a biotech industry in Boulder. In uh, 1992, we started a second one that became Nexstar. And that got bought also, but at least it got bought in a way where we had really done something and it was worth something. And many of those people from Nexstar now work at Somalogic. Which leads us here to your work at Somalogic and its work with proteins. Can you speak to Somalogic's vision on how these protein scans can change personalized healthcare as we know it? Um, <clears throat> so Somalogic's technology has a name. It's called Somascan. That's the profiling we do. And most of the business that we have done so far has been with pharma and biotech companies because it's an invaluable tool for them in their research and their drug development efforts. And we're getting a wonderful response from them. So we're doing a lot of that. We've been doing that for years. And this year, with our new CEO, Roy Smythe, who is a guy who really understands healthcare, he's a real doc, joined us to drive the commercialization toward people, medical problems, medical systems. He ran a medical system. He's, you know, he's the real deal and a good, a good person. And so the, the transition we're making is toward what your question is about. So the overall vision, which has been true for all 22 years, is that if we just did enough of this SOMASCAN profiling stuff that and, and had a lot of outcomes, oh, this person got this cancer, this person got this cancer, this person got this heart attack, this, 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 all these different um, non-healthy outcomes, that we would be able to correlate protein things we measure with events that were real at the time. So, you know, we do that now. I mean, today, um, if a woman is pregnant, within a couple of weeks, you can measure HCG and you know you're pregnant with nearly 100% accuracy. Wow. Boy, wouldn't it be neat if we had that for, for say, prostate cancer, a very common cancer for men. And so people think, well, let's we got PSA. That's 
prostate-specific antigen is what it stands for. We can measure that in men, and people do uh, do that. And if it goes up, well, maybe we'll have an early indication like HCG for pregnancy, but it would be for prostate cancer. And you know that for women, you do mammography as opposed to a measurement. It's kind of a measurement. And you use that as an early detection weapon um, so that you can act early in a disease progression, intervene so that it doesn't happen, usually by surgery for cancers. Uh, and so, you know, we, so we said something really simple about the use of SOMASCAN. Well, gee, if we measured enough stuff of those 20,000 proteins and we had enough medical data, this is kind of easy. It's not very smart. You just measure a bunch of stuff and see what goes up and down with disease A, B, C, and D. And, uh, and that, that's good. So we, we have a wonderful chief medical officer at Somalogic, a guy named Steve Williams, who's an MD, thank goodness, because he's a chief medical officer. He's very smart. And, um, and so he works on what the first products will be for real people. And some of them are going to have to do with generalized health. Some of them will have to do with your cardiology and whether uh, we'll have lots of stuff for cancers. We'll have stuff for nutrition. We have all that stuff, stuff for liver disease. So we have the beginnings of real products for people where the products are tied to medical people who would intervene in a particular way. So that's good. And that's happening right now. The planning for that and the launches will all happen by the end of the year. But the 20-year vision is better than that. So I love that. you got to do the pieces before. You have to do the little ones before you do the big one. What's the big one? The big one is you'll do this for 100 different conditions, all the cancers, all the cardio stuff, all the autoimmune disease, everything. You just do it for everything. And you've got all the data, and then people do regular soma scan, and you have a little lookup table that's done in the sky by you know, you know, some computational device. You push a button, and you get a little report. Sherry, you're fine. See you next year, or else you get a report. Uh oh, you're not so fine. You better go see you know Dr. Schmorgesburg down the street uh, because uh, she's an expert in whatever it is that your proteomic profile found early. So this is often about early detection. It will also be about choice of drugs for the intervention, because you don't, you don't always do surgery. I mean, that's for early cancer. So there's a whole bunch of interfaces between soma scan and interventions, medical choices that will be part of this thing. So in order to make this really applicable for everybody, for everything, um, you'd like the, the cost for us to be low enough so we could afford to make a fair profit and let people do it all the time. I mean, if I were a woman with a BRCA1 mutation and you told me that I could have SOMASCAN once a year, assuming we had good data that said, oh, we can see ovarian cancer or breast cancer, which we don't have yet, but we're working on it, um, I would be not comfortable uh, having a test once a year. 
I would be I would want it more often um, because those things can grow quickly when they and a year is kind of long time. How often would you like to do it? I don't know. Maybe every two or three months. I don't know. Every day. Every day. So we're working on that. We work hard on that. A group of us. It's my last contribution. I hope a big one. That out. And so there's a, a a kind of anticipation for the long term, not a year from now. The long term that we ought to make. Soma scan into something that is the formal equivalent of a wearable. But you're not going to wear a, something that big. But you could put something that big in your toilet. Mm -hmm. So that would, that, so at some point, we don't have enough data to know. No one knows how often this should be done. You just don't know. But your your instinct is that it might have to be done more frequently and therefore we have to keep working to drive the cost down. It seems like that would really empower the individual to make those choices yeah. and completely transform medical care as we know it. You said it. I, that That is the idea. It's been the idea from the beginning. It, it always was our idea that if you did this right, all you need to say is, you know what? From this protein profile, these 40 things went up and these 22 things went down. And when we look up those 40 and these other 22 in our little fancy lookup table, it's we've seen that 12,000 times and, we, and it's always this. So let's get on this, you know? That's the idea. I, I'm a fan of information driving medical decisions. Let's shift gears now to another Boulder institution that you're responsible for, which is Friends School. What inspired that? So Friends School started about 32 years ago when my hopes and my son Nicholas was two or three. He and uh, two other little boys, uh, Cole Davis and Evan Pelziger, and they had a little playgroup. These three boys, and because the moms were tired and were doing other things, and it led them to say, "Ooh, we got to start a school." It was that simple. They, it was. It, it is, in retrospect, remarkable what these three did. And they came one day to talk to me. They 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 prepared a pitch like like I was the venture capitalist, except it was going to be a not for profit, which it is, and. Um, you know, I'm telling you, 32 years ago, is a long time. And uh, they came, they had a flip chart. I had never been hustled like this before. It was kind of fun. And I sat there, and Joan, who was a very powerful woman, uh, she was the one charged with the ask. So she wrote on the, uh, on the white board or the flip chart, $25,000. She wrote that number down. And... Uh, I said, what's that? She said, if you give us $25,000, we'll never ask you for any more money. We'll build a school. Wow. How could you say no to that? So then Hope and I, they left, and then Hope and I talked. We said, fine. So we did that. And now there are, uh, you know, now that it goes from preschool through eighth grade, we have a wonderful, wonderful, unbelievable director of the school who's been here a year now. She's just wonderful. And 
and the parents love it and the kids love it and more most importantly the kids who have gone there when you track them they're different they're better i don't mean they're smarter and i don't mean they're more elitist they might be some of that i hope not but they are they're so curious about learning and they go follow their passions in ways that are it's what every parent, I mean, I know you have young children. It's what every parent wants. You want your kids to be lifelong learners, A. You want them to find their passion, B. And you want them to do something useful in the world. I think that's about it. I'm curious. How would you say Friends School is different from other private schools in Boulder? If you live in Boulder, it is incredibly easy to be an elitist jerk. It's just so easy to be that because we have everything here. I mean, you want a good restaurant? We got them. You want a good bookstore? We got some, including Boulder Bookstore. You want to go to hear music at Eton? You can do that. You want to go to the Conference on World Affairs? You can do that. You want to go to the Gold Lab Symposium? You can do that. So, you know, think, wow, it's like a playground for people who have a lot of time to enjoy what we do here. And, and of course, Fred School and actually Somologic and the symposium, they're all sort of aimed at how do you how do you help everybody instead of just somebody, you know, some, you know, rich people or something. And and it's kind of the theme in my life, really, I, I think, I hope. Uh, and uh, and so the, the the idea of friend school, if it survives a long time, which we're trying to make sure it does, is that it's kind of almost like a lab school to help find out how do you, what does it mean to make a lifelong learner? My kids are lifelong learners. Who do I give most of that credit to? Friend school. I mean, Hope and I are also lifelong learners. But it, it's, you can't just model that. You have, to, you have to reinforce it. You have to incentivize it. This is all complicated. And, and so I think Friends School has a chance of being a permanent addition in the Boulder scene. At some point, you describe Friends School as a lab, and I love that idea of it being an incubator for lifelong learners. Which brings me to another project you're working on. Tell me about Coles. So Coles stands for Colorado, that's the CEO, Longitudinal Study. And what all of my work and in biotech and working with people all around the world who want the same things, which is better health for everybody. Everybody wants it. It's like apple pie. You have to have that. I, I tried to think really hard as a science type person. How do you work on diseases uh, and people who have them? And how do you get biological samples from people who are sick? So you can do the science that it takes to treat those people. And it's a kind of catch-22 because the first time a doc gets to see a person with a disease often is during the moment of diagnosis. Huh. So you think, well, God, what you really ought to have is, you know, a biobank, let's call it. That is what it's called, where you have, you know, urine and blood from people who are healthy that is taken regularly and put in a freezer so that when they do get sick and they all will get sick with something, 
you actually have the backward set of samples to study, to learn about early detection and disease trajectories and all that stuff. So, so you could imagine that the world's perfect biobank would be regular collections from a lot of people along with their medical records so that sciencey types, the biotech and pharma and healthcare providers, you know, and, and academics, all kinds of people, could actually get their arms around what a disease looks like in the, the pre-symptomatic phase. Because there's always a pre-symptomatic phase, and, it, and usually that's the right time to act if you can. Um, so we started a thing called the Colorado Longitude. It's a 501c3 thing. And the idea is to, to do this as a Colorado project and raise a lot of money and get a million people in Colorado to give samples and a medical record to this biobank once a year or thereabouts and to make those available to anybody that knows how to do science, not in a nasty way, make it available so that we can get good data to figure out how to intervene early instead of late. Isn't that neat? That's awesome. Sign me up. Yeah, there you go. Well, the, the, I think it's going to happen. That's fantastic. Another movement towards the preventative medicine. Yes. Yep. They're all the same. I only have one life except for food <laughs> and wine and my children. So. so coming full circle here, Nat Geo named Boulder the happiest city in the United States in 2017. How is this true for you? Um. So... That day in 1969, when I was flown out to be interviewed, like magic, I, I rented a car at then Stapleton Airport, and I'm coming down 36, and there's Boulder right in front of me. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never, I'd never seen a mountain. I, I lived around the Adirondacks. I then wasn't a skier like I am now or try to be. And... Uh, I, it was unspeakably beautiful. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. And, um, and, and that sense of Boulder has never changed. I mean, when I, I travel a lot, when I come down that hill, it has never changed. It's still the same. And here we live in this unbelievable garden, this beautiful place. And you just have to feel gratitude when you come down that hill. If you don't feel gratitude, you're a jerk. I mean, you know, we're very lucky. The magic is that it turned out to be a place as the university got better in the areas I, that I focus on. It became a place one did not have to leave. You didn't have to leave. I mean, my science friends, not just the ones at Somologic or the biotech companies, but my science friends at the university, they're, they're wonderful scientists, wonderful scientists. So you don't have to go anywhere. Um, you just have to stay here and do your work and talk to your smart friends in some place. I mean, the only complaint I have, can I tell you my complaint? Sure. Is that okay? You can yes, cut it out of course. and do what you want. I, I, you know, and if I told you, you know, I, I sort of grew up thinking I was a lefty of some sort. And, and, you know, I don't say that with contempt, self-contempt. I mean, I like the values of wanting to help people. And it turns out that 
that Boulder is on a course that needs to be corrected in my view as a just a guy living here and being feeling all this gratitude. You can't build a sustainable city where no one can afford to live here. You just can't do that. You just can't. I mean, you know, I live in a nice house. I've been here a long time, and I'm, you know, I got lucky. You know, I, you know, I got lucky. So I, I always thought that the Danish plan of don't not going vertical was incompatible with a sustainable city. And, you know, you're going to have to go vertical, and you're going to have to make vertical beautiful. You have to have an integrated thing where people live as real people. And, and there are places in Boulder that exemplify that. My favorite is, of course, Etam. If you go to Etam, which I do as often as I can, and you look around you and you realize you're not seeing the people that you're eating with every night or working with, it's everybody in this town. It's affordable. The music is great. Nick and Helen are great. And, and, and their whole idea was to make something that was accessible, not elitist, accessible. And Boulder has to figure that out. So if you start with the premise, how do you make Boulder sustainable? That means you gotta have jobs, you gotta have transportation, you gotta have people able to live here, you know, all that stuff. This is a 50-year plan. And, and we have enough smart people in Boulder to, to solve that. And the shared objectives are high quality life. You don't start with a discussion about our precious mountain backdrop. You start with high quality life for everybody in a non-elitist way. Thoughtfully said by a long-term Boulder resident with lots of perspective, and certainly something to consider at a time when Boulder seems to be reaching a critical mass. Larry and other industry leaders tackle topics like these at the annual Gold Lab Symposia held at CU Boulder. To learn more, visit their website at www.goldlabfoundation.org. To learn more about how the protein levels in your body can teach you about your health, visit www.somalogic.com. Thank you, Larry, for taking a moment to sit with me in the studio today. Your commitment to changing healthcare for the better through teaching, research, and debate among scientists and citizens throughout the world inspires me towards better health and gives us all hope for a healthier future. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boulderista podcast. For more info on today's episode, to nominate an influencer to be on the show, or to connect with me for your Boulder real estate needs, please visit us at www.theboulderista.com and on Facebook and Instagram at The Boulderista. While you're there, don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Until next time, stay happy, Boulder.